If we were asked to name the chief benefit of the house, I should say the house shelters daydreaming, the house protects the dreamer. The house allows one to dream in peace. Deze podcastserie is een keuze uit de radio-uitzendingen Shelter for Daydreams. Fucking Good Art, Radio Warm, Open City Life. Dit was ons publiek gedeelde veldwerk tijdens Rotterdam Cultural Histories nummer 19 in Tent Melly. Homes for People, Not Profit. Aflevering 6. Push the Movie. Op vrijdag 19 maart 2021 zonden we de soundtrack uit van de film Push van Frederik Kerten en Leilani Farha. Vandaag gaan we Push de film afspelen. Dat sluit heel mooi aan op wat we vanochtend hebben gedaan. Vanochtend was er een protest bij Tweebos in een van de binnentuinen waar een ploeg boomkappers... Slopers klaar stonden om de hele binnentuin uh, leeg te halen. We waren met een mannetje of uh, uh, 25, 30 om dat proberen te voorkomen, omdat het helemaal nog niet zeker is dat het blok uh, gesloopt gaat worden. De twee bossers van de, de La Rijstraat die zijn nog steeds in protest en uh, de rechter moet nog beslissen of Vestia gelijk krijgt of niet. En dat is pas uh, eind van deze maand. Dus je zou kunnen zeggen, het is helemaal niet nodig dat die bomen gesloopt gaan worden. Uh, Zeker niet vandaag. Nou, we hebben alles alles geprobeerd. Iedereen heeft alles geprobeerd om dat te proberen te voorkomen. Maar ja, al die ambtenaren, dus uh, dus, uh, ook politie, er was politie, dus de, 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 de... uh, er staan uh, ambten, uitvoerende ambtenaren, uh, een aannemer met een grote machine en, uh, en jongens die komen zagen. Ja, dat staat allemaal in één lijn. En de belangrijkste man is natuurlijk de man in het stadhuis. Curvers. Ja, ook onder andere curvers. Maar ze hebben besloten dat dit allemaal uh, uh, moet gebeuren. En Vestia die is daar dolblij mee. Vestia die stond op straat. Twee man sterk. Uh, die hebben we overigens niet gesproken, want die willen niet op de radio. Dat wordt een reportage voor volgende week, want dan moeten we hebben best veel materiaal. Um, ja, en we zijn eigenlijk pas net terug, want we dachten we gaan daar even heen, maar we zijn hele slechte journalisten, dus we gingen meteen proberen te helpen. En zijn bijna de hele dag gebleven en willen dat toch nog eventjes monteren in plaats van uh, gewoon het eerste uurtje uitzenden. Ja, dus wat we gaan draaien uh, vandaag is Push, de film, maar dan de soundtrack. Uh, de film is uit 2019, die is van Frederik Gerten en Leilani Vara. Dat is de speciale rapporteur van de WAS, de speciale rapporteur on housing van de uh, United Nations. En een van de vragen die ze stellen in die film is... Why can't we afford to live in our cities? En de synopsis is als volgt. Housing prices are skyrocketing in cities around the world. Incomes are not. Push sheds light on a new kind of faceless landlord. Our increasingly unlivable cities and an escalating crisis that has an, an effect on all of us. This is not gentrification. It is a different kind of monster, zegt Saskia Sasse. Uh, 
The film follows Leilani Fara, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing, and she travels the globe trying to understand who is being pushed out on of the cities and why. Zij zegt, I believe there's a huge difference between housing as a commodity and gold as a commodity. Gold is not a human right. Housing is. Ik wil ook nog even wat zeggen. Dat we erachter kwamen dat uh, veel mensen in Rotterdam, zo in de Wielewaal en Tweebos, die zijn ook door haar geïnspireerd. Ze was, uh, ze was hier in Nederland in 2019. En uh, ze heeft ook een brief geschreven aan het Rotterdamse gemeenteraad. En uh, mensen in wijken hier die worden weggestuurd, de stad uit eigenlijk. Um, om die een hart onder de riem te steken en ook een, een, een wettelijke basis te geven eigenlijk aan hun recht te wonen. De documentaire gaat ook over Blackstone. Dat is een Amerikaans bedrijf dat pensioengeld in huizen belegt. Het bedrijf koopt huizen op, knapt ze op en verhuurt ze tegen hoge prijzen, hogere prijzen. Dit jaar kocht Blackstone alleen al in Rotterdam en Amsterdam voor 260 miljoen euro aan huizen. Ik dacht, Nienke, ik weet niet of jij... Nee, dat wist ik ook helemaal niet. Maar dat vond ik Blackstone nu... in Rotterdam ook? Ja, dat vond ik in het AD. Ja. Oké, okay, we gaan luisteren naar de soundtrack van de documentaire Push. Het is een soort basic reading eigenlijk. Well, you know the you know the first sign that you're gonna have to leave your neighborhood is when vintage clothing shops show up. <laughs> Nothing worse for a neighborhood than poor people with style. <laughs> and then you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna hang out in cafes. They're gonna talk about making movies and you know writing songs. Then they're gonna make the neighborhood really cool, and then the housing value is gonna go up, and then they're all gonna get the push. You can't keep up with the housing market, well, off you go. When faced with such stupidity, when faced with a system that is so backwards and broken and based on lies, there is something so pure and so good about life that it can give us the hope to carry on. To the lips of your lover, to the simple act of kissing, May it get you through the darkest of times. To kissing. Oh, yeah. 
And my job is to go around the world and investigate different housing issues and um, sort of see how are people faring with respect to the right to housing. But maybe you could tell me a bit about how you came to needing to have a rent strike. Well, for me personally, I have a mouse problem, I have a cockroach problem, I've got things that need to be repaired in the building. They withhold services. They run you around in circles. They frustrate you. You get fed up. Mm -hmm. You just want to leave. But where are we going to go? The rent situation all over Toronto is the yeah, same way. It's, a, it's a fiction by another name. Yeah. And have you had any response from Metcap yet? Harass I guess it's, it's harassment. Harassment, yeah. Bart had a sign on her, she had a sign on her balcony about the uh, rent strike, and they threatened to evict her. Uh, I'm giving you this notice because I want to end your tenancy. I want you to move out of your rental unit by such and such date, reason. I believe that you or someone living with you has committed an illegal act. Uh, and six is serious criminality. Yeah. Guns oh my, for a legal action. Guns and drugs is an N6. Oh my gosh. They came after her with the hardest, oh hardest gosh. category they could. Yeah. So this was based on the banner? Yeah. You know, we're not bad-mouthing no. them or anything. It just says May 1st rent strike. Yeah. They own 19 buildings in the area, and that's their plan for all the buildings, is to get people like us out. The neighborhood's getting gentrified. Uh, if you know, familiar with Liberty Village, it's moving, it's come right up to King and Dufferin, and, and this is its only one direction into our neighbor, and we're in the way. to the chart yeah in the greater Toronto area for example in the last 30 years housing prices have increased by 425 percent whereas in a similar 30-year period average family income has only grown by 133 percent so something else is in play and clearly it's not the economic fundamentals as you can see from the above graph so are you gonna send this around or what no I don't know I would need to check the numbers first, but it's pretty, I mean, that's, it's pretty grim. I think we are at an incredibly urgent moment. The extent to which we're seeing urbanization collide with stagnant wages and a lack of affordability is unprecedented. So you have like poor people really struggling now, like, like never before. But then you also have the middle class unable to afford to live in cities and provide the services that are necessary for a city. I don't want to overuse the word crisis, but it suggests a crisis. So then we start asking, wait a second, who's going to live in cities? Who are cities for? 
it's not um, rocket science, you know? What do we think people need to have a dignified life? And it's clear that decent housing, affordable housing, is one of those things. And it's supported by international law. Kennedy Heights family is just hours away from learning whether or not they can stay in their home or be forced out onto the streets. Problem? Housing is gobbling up more of shrinking paychecks. People in 59 out of 102 countries worldwide would need to save their yearly income for at least 10 years in order to buy a house in their country. There are two histories, we might say, that intersect today in that space that we call the city. And one of them is a familiar issue, which is the, what we have, for which we have used the term gentrification. When I hear people today saying it's gentrification, one reaction, an ironic reaction is, if only. It's much deeper than that. It's much more foundational. We're in the home of an older woman who uh, is being pressured to abandon her home because it's in the midst of this big new development. Here there was a hospital. It's been demolished. And it was demolished to make way for condominiums, luxury condominiums, and they don't even own this land. I've heard that there are many units standing vacant already, luxury condos and lofts, because no one in Valparaiso can afford to buy and purchase any of these units. So these developments are clearly not for the people of Valparaiso. Y no han, ellos, como inmobiliaria, inmobiliaria no lo han pedido permiso. Pusieron nombre Parque Varón y resulta que volaron todos, todos los árboles. Era un jardín del Edén. Olivos, eh, almendros, ciruelos. Todos los niños, todos entraban a jugar y volaron todos los árboles, no hay nada. El Parque Varón, la palabra parque, es cero. Bueno, esto es lo que estoy viendo buying up of land, the displacement of the poorest people, and the putting up of luxury uh, units that are not actually for the people who live in the community. Hay una persona con un abogado. Tu contrato está no bien. Tu contrato está fallo. 2017, enero, ha dejado, echan todo, familia. Y último, y uno que debe solo yo, mi familia. Welcome to my nightmare. We've had no heat all through April, no hot water all through April. There's water leaking underneath the sink. New owners have taken over. We haven't met them, we haven't seen them, we don't know anything about them. It could be Frosty the Snowman for all I know. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, they're trying everything to evict us. Una persona familia llora mucho porque él también vive aquí 20 años. This is where I grew up, you know. 
and uh, I, you know, I'll be hell bent and bound if I'm going to be pushed out of here. Mm. You be a good girl. Okay. All right. Bye. Have have some have fun. Thank you very much. I was very proud to live in Notting Hill. When you go somewhere. Where do you live? Oh, Notting Hill, because they've heard about the film or whatever. And you think, yeah, Notting Hill. The thing I like about this area is, is the community. You know, your friends are from all faiths, all colours. I'm here! There's one word for this community, it's a family. It's actually a family because even if we don't know each other, we know each other by face. See me here! I was born just five minutes from here, and in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I've seen the whole area change. You know, some pop stars and people moving into the area because they, they like the, the vibe. The vibe is really cool. The people who've seen the, the film, they come over from all around the world. They want to see where the blue door is. They want to see this, the, the bookshop. It became a very, very trendy place to, to live. And then the new school and new leisure centre, that's going to attract the, the wealthy people to come down to the area. And then they start buying up properties. Don't need to live there. But, you know, because it's a um, fantastic investment for them. Better than putting it in the bank. So our fourth stop on the highlight tour of London kleptocracy properties, these two properties are worth perhaps £20 million each. I believe Mr. Chatter paid something in the region of £40 or £50 million for it. If you could get a whole one of these, it would be £30 or £40 million. And nobody lives here, and nothing is happening to this thing. So it's become a dead spot in London. There was uh, news agents, there were pubs, there were a couple of restaurants. But the community itself has evaporated. So we, we purchased our flat in 94. If I sold my flat, I could not live in Kensington, Chelsea. I'd be forced out of the area. You know, I'd have to actually probably move out of London. I can stand in the middle of the street with empty car parking spaces all around me and no traffic coming. This place is now a bit of a dead zone. We have very little indication of who the owners are. And a lot of them are completely empty, so you, you can't go up and ask them who they are. They're actually just empty all the time. One way of putting it is, this is not at all about housing. The, the buildings, they function as assets. You want those houses to be empty and unused, because then you can play with them. Can you imagine, I mean, these dark, empty, buildings 
and they are making money. So when people think, oh, poor investor, something went wrong, hell no. My first reaction to learning about this phenomenon of vacant dwellings, I was pretty outraged. I remain outraged. framework and through the UN system it's very clear who is accountable states states are responsible they have international human rights obligations they sign treaties and they make commitments to the international community that they will uphold international human rights which include the right to adequate housing hard on my door and then I opened the front door and there's just a blanket of black smoke so I just closed the door very calmly thinking um, oh there's a fire and that was the beginning of the fire. We were still in there for two and a half hours. That's the beginning. That's. When I heard about it, I was in Canada and watching it unfold through Twitter. And then I started getting these details. Social housing estate marginalized community, community set in a very rich, affluent borough, allegations of poor housing conditions from before the fire. Then I see an, an arm up to about here come through the smoke and kind of grab my wife, and then another arm on the other side come to, to kind of grab myself. And I said, how about my dog, my dog? The officer said, no, I'm sorry. We're going to have to go. So I just looked at my dog, and I, it's just, you know, amazing. My dog's my, like, my child. It's um, a two-year-old beagle called Lewis Hamilton II. But he chose his own name. You give him the options, and he liked Lewis, so... So he was, yeah. And then we, we were off into the darkness. And then I'm going down, and then I'm treading on things. I think, oh, they must have the water pipes already in the stairwell. But then the realisation, no, I think it's people. I think I'm treading on on, on bodies. I'm treading on something. Something is, is, that is in my way. I was actually quite happy when they put cladding to make it pretty, make it look nice for the surrounding area. And somebody knew that they'd do it on the cheap. 
there were these elements that seemed to be a, a bit of a global phenomenon where you have a, a kind of vulnerable community. Most of the people in Grenfell are working, but there are working poor literally living side by side with incredibly wealthy people and an incredible amount of wealth. The tension between the two and then watching this fire, it was like a physical representation of the displacement of a community. For me, that's the narrative of the world right now. Look, one of the, I heard one of the councillors, one of the councillors said, if you can't live in Notting Hill, then you shouldn't, shouldn't be in Notting Hill. What's all that about? Who the fuck is he to say something like that? Do, do you get what I'm coming from? So it's like people that have lived there all their lives are just being like, treated like a piece of shit, and it's wrong, isn't it? Makes me sick to want to talk about it. it. brings tears to my eyes. You can't just disregard them like they're rubbish, like they're that fire. They just burnt them. It's like, that's like, you know, that's, this is the richest town in the borough, man. How can that happen? How? You have yes. human rights obligations, I agree, I agree. and you can't let yeah. these investors and the financial system run amok on its own. I say, wow, human rights, every single person has a bunch of rights. And then I have a question for you, and that is... Are you a legal scholar on human rights? Do you just, yes, okay. yes so that's right. The, you have the, the instrumentality that is the law. Exactly. Because what I see is those with power, boy, can they deploy mm -hmm. the law in ways that work for them. Stuff is happening, you know? Yeah. Prices go up in a neighborhood that is fixed. That's one thing. Everybody understands that part. And then they should understand that at that point, another actor might come into the picture. A monster that nobody can see, that nobody really understands, whose language is incomprehensible. Who is this monster, actually? What is happening here? I don't believe that capitalism itself is hugely problematic. Is unbridled capitalism in an area that is a human right problematic? Yes. And I think that's what differentiates housing as a commodity from gold as a commodity. Gold is not a human right. Housing is. This building, this whole complex has 1,700. 1,700? Wow. Yeah, 1,700 units. Wow. The previous landlords, I think, was CNC. They, I think they did put information up to let, the, let us know that the, build, the, the complex was going to be sold. Right. But this is before Fairfield, uh, Fairfield came in. Do you know who is Fairfield? I don't know who they are. From what I'm told, Fairfield is a subsidiary of... Um, is it Blackstone? 
Right, private they, equity firm. Yes, exactly. They want to raise each each apartment. They the rent up to like nine hundred dollars each. That is by nine hundred dollars each. By nine hundred dollars. And are you going to be able to pay that? I don't know. I mean, I I, I can definitely say next year there's there's no way. And where I'm going to go, I don't have a clue. I don't know. Right. And are, do you mind me asking, are you employed? Yes, I am. Yeah. And so what percentage of your income would this be, 25, 8, 90%. 90%. About 90, I'll say, all right, yeah, 90, 90%. Right. And do you consider that affordable for you? Oh, no, it's not. Yeah. I think human rights law hasn't caught up. And it worries me that I haven't quite yet found the language. How do we describe it in a way that will make sense, resonate, and really get at that issue? I'm still looking, I'm looking for that. I feel a little bit desperate about that. So maybe I need to keep talking to the people in the financial field. The first type of sign that I noticed when I came here was this uh, very limited uh, opening hours. They show their tenants that they are willing to, to meet them, and uh, this is three uh, hours per week on, on Tuesdays. Mm. So the Dikonegie is the Swedish arm of uh, the Blackstone Company. So many signs that they actually don't bother much here. But this, it's a typical example of the type of estates they are interested in. Yes. So every time an apartment is vacant, they start this renovation, whereby they can increase the rents with roughly 50%. But these uh, increased rents have no connection at all to the actual costs, why this is very, very profitable for them. There is a total disconnect between the person living in the home and the person owning the home. Owning the house is only a means to making money. That's fine. That's a, you know, it sells something, we pay money for that. Finance is totally different. I always say, finance sells something it does not have. And that means that finance is basically an extractive sector. Finance is like mining. Once it has extracted what it needs, it doesn't care what happens with the rest. of all real estate that functions as an asset is $217 trillion. That's more than global GDP of all the countries in the world, of all the economies in the world.
they're highly camouflaged extractions because they come in the shape of extraordinarily complex instruments that nobody who's not in that business can understand. It's so complex that we delegate to the experts. Who are the experts? It's the financial sector itself. Goodbye, you. I'll see you Bye. and Ryan après l'école. Come on, Bean. Come on. Come on. We're the largest real estate private equity firm in the world. We've got investments in people around the globe. But by keeping our business entrepreneurial, we can move very, very quickly. John Gray is the global head of real estate for Blackstone Group, which is the world's largest private equity manager. So one of the uh, markets you went into was single-family homes, and I know you have a big portfolio. Is it 50,000 or? Yes. How do you even find 50,000 yeah. homes to buy? You need a, a, a global financial crisis for that to occur. Um, you're sitting around in 2011. You're saying, where is there a large pool of assets uh, that are going to be sold by financial institutions um, at big discounts to underlying replacement costs. And it was pretty obvious it was single-family homes. Um, let's spend 25000 or so fixing them up, and then let's rent them out and make income-producing assets out of them, like an apartment business, but just not in one large complex. But if we do it in enough scale... I was just poking around trying to get my head around some of the um, stuff around hedge funds and buying up distressed mortgages and all of that. And I went on to the Blackstone website. Um, I've worked with Bruce for more than 20 years. He's an advocate and thinks so differently than anyone I know. To basically buy up the whole neighborhood, gentrify the whole thing, mm -hmm. and double or triple the value of the real estate just because you've gentrified the neighborhood and forced everybody else out. Mm -hmm. And makes no mention of people, really, at, le at least at, by minute 16 and a half, he hasn't mentioned, like, the people that would be living in those places. We own properties around the globe. We buy these investments on behalf of our A company like Blackstone or any of the big financial enterprises were the big winners in the crisis. Uh, they were the big winners in the housing market. Uh, they were also the big winners in the equity markets. It was as if the U.S. government, rather than helping the homeowners who were losing their homes, actually sided with the banks, encouraged foreclosures to clean up the books, gave the money to the hedge funds and, and private equity firms, who then bought the, the distressed assets to make money. So it is the way that the 2008 crisis has played an important role in increasing wealth inequality in the United States and in other countries that have been afflicted by the crisis. It doesn't totally work as a statement yet. Let me give you a snapshot of the new world of housing, and while I do so, I urge you to reflect on the images behind me. Right. Just like that? Yeah. Like, I can't remember how we did it with the homelessness report, but I remember when I was re reading my statement, I did have that 
if a pin dropped, we would have heard it in the room. And that's what I need because, you know, half the time they're on their Blackberries and not paying attention. Yeah. Um, their iPhones, I suppose, now. You know, I mean, homelessness is a bit different, too. You know, we were seeing images of people. And part of the problem, then, is that when you're describing the stuff that's supposed to be shocking, it's all cranes and buildings and glass and stuff. And so you're not moved in the same way. Distinguished delegates, we are living in a new world, a world in which the housing sector has been transformed by global corporate financial actors and massive amounts of excess global capital. Global residential real estate is now valued at $163 trillion, more than twice the world's total GDP. Housing has been financialized, valued as a commodity rather than a human dwelling. What I am suggesting is a significant change away from the commodification of housing in order to retrieve what housing means in terms of human dignity and security as a lived experience, as a human right. Thank you. Well, we're walking through the new buildings, the new estate, which is now called Elephant Park, which replaces the Haygate estate, where I used to live. Like, look, so many, all of them. Empty. Yeah. Many of the flats in this part of the development were sold in Hong Kong and Singapore. When they're sold overseas, they're not necessarily sold for people to live in. They're sold as investments. Wouldn't like to sort of romanticize what it was like before. Right. But it was an ordinary council estate, lots of ordinary families in it. And right. I suppose at this time of day, most of them would have been off to work and off to school and right. off to college and so on. We're dealing with a very, it's a very particular period. The elites feel free to violate basic laws. And, uh, and then they're surprised that there is bitterness among the, uh, the working classes that have lost an incredible ground, I mean, a lot of ground in our society. So it's a tough moment. And following the money brings up a lot of very substantive reasons as to why people are so angry. They don't know exactly, they don't have the knowledge, but they know that something is not right. Known work was concerned about asymmetries of information, the fact that some people know things that other people don't, and that gives some people have the ability to take advantage of others. Um, you can make more money not by making a better product and lowering cost of production, which is the standard economic analysis, but by fishing for fools, looking for people you can take advantage of. They're not creating wealth, they're actually just taking wealth. If you're somebody like the head of Blackstone, you know, I've heard him talk about the big advantages of no regulation, of deregulation. Of course he wants to be able to exploit the people who are living in his properties. We 
have arrived at a moment when there is a gaping hole in our system. Most of our major international systems are, don't take the individual so seriously. Count four down from uh -huh. the top on the um, left-hand corner. Yeah. My, my flat was there. Oh, my God. I actually bought my flat. So I own that flat. Mm. I paid my mortgage. The problem is the prices round here, you know, for a you know, ground floor, any, any flat round here right. is extortionate. Yeah. And they wanted to give us, like, um, a little bit of money and say, off you go. But then I'll have to move out of London. So I decided... To, to stay with friends. Most of the people that live in that tower block are still not been homed. Nine uh, months later. Nine months later. I'm now in a hostel. It, the place that they could offer me could be anywhere in the country, and if I don't accept it, I become intentionally homeless. Um, anywhere in the country? Well, yeah, I mean, it could be Birmingham, it could be Manchester, anywhere. If you can treat people after a tragedy like that, the way they're treating them now, what hope does anyone have? I always picture myself like, I'm five foot two, I'm from this like nowhere place, and I'm trying to make a huge difference globally. I'm trying to change an entire conversation that's embedded in the way people live all around the world. And then I look back at that girl from Ottawa sitting in her basement office and it's like, what am I thinking? Like, am I, like, is this, is this ridiculous? Am I being ridiculous? This is vetro blindato. Immagina di avere 100 milioni di euro presi dalla cocaina o per esempio presi dal traffico dei migranti. Cosa fai? Devi comprare dei ristoranti, degli hotel, delle case, ma quei 100 milioni come li fai a giustificare? Apri una società all'estero, in paradisi fiscali. Compri a poco prezzo, con soldi legali che hai, cose, per esempio a Roma, un ristorante, un piccolo hotel, delle case, che è un vero stato sospetto. Quelle case le rivendi alla società estera, che sei tu però. A quel punto la società estera, dove tu hai messo i soldi sporchi, comprandoti quei beni, fa rientrare i soldi in Italia o in Inghilterra o in Germania. Così si ricicla in tutto il mondo. Se tu vuoi far rientrare dei soldi sporchi dall'estero, 
non devi fare null'altro che comprare dei beni che puoi vendere a te stesso al doppio del prezzo di quello che hai acquistato. Questo meccanismo non può essere attaccato. Cosa hanno in comune la regina Elisabetta e Raffaele Caro Quintero, boss del narcotraffico messicano? Cosa hanno in comune la Shakira e la Apple? Tutti hanno una parte o, o la quasi totalità dei loro capitali in paradisi fiscali. Le stesse banche fanno affari con i cartelli e fanno affari con chi fa denaro onestamente. Si mischiano con i soldi della coca, si mischiano con i soldi dell'evasione nello stesso posto. Questi soldi cosa diventano? Diventano aziende, diventano turismo, alberghi, negozi, supermercati, squadra di calcio, arte, musei, politica. E non puoi più rintracciarne l'origine. La prima cosa che hanno fatto i grandi gruppi economico-finanziari americani, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, tutti, è cercare degli spazi dove pagare meno tasse. Ma com'è possibile che in un paese come l'Italia un lavoratore onesto paghi il 60% e un'azienda multimiliardaria paghi il 5-4% di tasse? Qui abbiamo finito e stiamo scendendo giù. Ah no, scendo le scale? Oh, scendo le scale vuole. Le società non vogliono case che costino poco. Le società sognano di pagare una casa il più possibile per poter nascondere più soldi. A meno che non abbiano, come dire, soldi dalla famiglia, le prossime generazioni non potranno, non avranno mai una casa. It is a totally dysfunctional system. In the late 1970s and 1980s, there developed, uh, I would call it an ideology, a religion, that markets solve all problems. There'll be big winners, there'll be big losers. In the name of equality, should the winnings be redistributed to the losers? so that everybody ends up where he started? That would take all the fun out of the game. Uh, the high priest was Milton Friedman. The big experiment was Chile under Pinochet. It took the dictator to really implement these ideas. They thought that if we privatized, stripped away regulations, lower taxes, growth would go up. Everybody would get more. Some people would get a lot more at the top. But putting aside envy, everybody would get a bigger piece of a pie. It ignored the many instances where markets do not work well. Milton Friedman gave them an economic argument for why they should be unconcerned about morality. Well, after a third of a century of this experiment, we now know that it's wrong. 
and that you can make money by destroying the world. And there's something wrong with that. And when I think how will finance come down, it's bringing itself down. It has, you know, extracted so much value that it's stuck now. And it's beginning to go on the other side of the curve. It is beginning to decline. You know, the amount of value, the capacity to invent more assets, we see sort of a stasis a bit. So it will bring itself down. It will come, it will come back, potentially roaring. But right now, it's a bit of stasis. If we're going to defend cities as we know them, I can't do it alone. I decided to create a new movement called The Shift so that we can come up with ideas of how to protect our cities. So it's not an NGO movement. It's not a movement of just cities. Uh, it's a movement, hopefully, of all stakeholders. You know, the, the so fitting to be launching the shift here in Barcelona, where the effects of financialization have taken hold. And where there's a mayor, like, at a collab. I hired a young woman, Julie, who had a background in uh, international human rights law. Cut and paste these and move them up. One third of deaths worldwide are linked to poverty and inadequate housing. That's good? Yeah. We need a worldwide movement to reclaim and realize the fundamental right to housing. El principal factor de expulsión de vecinos de la ciudad de Barcelona es la especulación con la vivienda, la gentrificación y la operación de los grandes capitales que como buitres eh, desembarcan en nuestra ciudad para sacar máximos beneficios a costa de especular con un bien de primera necessidad. If we look, like I'm, I've been looking at the Blackstone, the largest oh. private equity firm. They have more power than yes. the state, yes. you know? Yes. So yes. how yes. are you? Yes. Yeah, you know exactly, you're crying. <laughs> when we have some of these hedge funds trying to speculate in the city, they want to buy the building, or we buy it first. But we do it because we have money. And it's a lot I mean, of money. Because like you're paying market. market. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that can be market expensive. I'm interested to know how the investors, the vulture funds, the hedge funds, Airbnb are reacting to what you're doing. Airbnb fue primero reaccionó muy muy duro, ¿no? Muy agresivo porque no soportan la idea de que les digan que les van a regular. There are some some groups acting like authentic mafias right now. changing the world from one breath to another is not something you see. It feels like it was so tiny. Before we got here, and then now it's like... 
So it's like the mayor of Barcelona is maybe going to pitch this to the mayor of New York. Mayor London. So the question is, the big question, Julie, are you up for it? <laughs> no, I'm up for it. Okay. These big private equity firms like Blackstone. It has taken me some time to ask the question, well, where are they getting their money from? Pension funds have a huge amount of money and they need to grow in order to make sure that the people who pay into the pension fund have something to live on at the end of their working lives. My mission to South Korea was planned well before I had this one piece of information, but some of the largest pension funds are right here. The National Pension Service is the third largest pension fund in the world. It was one of the poorest countries, and now it's the 11th largest economy in the world. In 50 years, that's pretty impressive. But of course, to make that happen in a 50-year period required a kind of brutalism of massive development. This was 340 countries. Yungu 그 누워 있는 집사람을 배를 차서 No one seems to know that that's where their pension money is going. No one seems to really care. I did speak with a couple of representatives from the National Pension Service and they were pretty matter of fact at first about you know, what they have, what their job is. And I get it. Their job is to grow money for pensioners. We give our money to asset managers and they then decide sort of where it gets invested and so distancing themselves from it. So in other words, it doesn't really matter where the pension money's going as long as it's a good return. National and city governments in South Korea need to make some major shifts before they will be in full compliance with their human rights obligations. You know, human rights law is very specific about those types of projects. Forced eviction under international human rights is considered a gross violation of human rights. People die in forced evictions and people's lives are basically ruined. So it's not to be taken lightly. 
core issues, you know, climate change, housing, they ought to be embedded into the fiduciary frameworks of pension funds. Pension funds are representing people who are going to retire. And you have to ask, how would they feel about this? Would they feel comfortable with owning shares in a company that is that immoral? I'd lived there 38 years. I paid my rent for 38 years, and they're supposed to upkeep the building. They're supposed to do stuff. The, the management company has readily admitted there's been nothing done for 40 years. So where's all that money I've already spent? And now the new company wants me to give them more money. It's a familiar story. This yeah, is, this is yeah. uh, the same situation. It's the same situation we were dealing with here. So, yeah, talk to the media, and this is how we won the rent strike, correct, Mark? You're in the first month of the rent strike, and we, were, we went into month four. So it's a bit of a haul, but it's worth all your time and effort. So um, through some research, we've discovered that this property management company has investment companies that have certain shares. And one of them turns out to be a pension, a, a government pension fund holder. So imagine you have George here on a pension, and they are taking care of money for pension holders, right? Wait till they find out that somebody who's on a pension is being extorted, and they're, they're pushing them out. I get back Tuesday night, but kind of late. You know, we're doing the shift meeting, and then the mayors are going to be there, and they'll... Right. It's pretty cool. I feel slightly, you know, things can go sideways. Overwhelmed? No, I don't feel... Uh... Stress? Uh... Entonces hemos puesto una multa, hemos puesto una sanción de 600.000 euros, que es la multa más grande que se ha puesto nunca, y Airbnb, que no quería hablar con nosotros, ahora sí quiere hablar con nosotros. We have come together with cities, with partners, with local government associations to build a partnership. In Berlin gehen wir den Weg, dass wir öffentliche Flächen nicht mehr privatisieren. Vielleicht muss man sogar noch einen Schritt darüber hinausgehen. Pero y bueno, yo a veces miro porque me, me he leído cosas que ha hecho Londres o que ha hecho Nueva York acá y digo, ¡pah! Qué bueno sería. Por eso yo creo que, que esta declaración es muy importante. Je voudrais dire combien aussi il est important que ce message politique puisse rassembler des, des villes dans leur diversité. 
what you around this table do can have a huge influence. It can guide other cities to prevent powerful financial actors, and they are powerful, from dismantling cities as we know them. We thought a lot about, about whether it was right, the right time for New York to sign on to this declaration. And we decided it really is. I mean, these are issues we're all grappling with. We do feel like it's a great opportunity to be um, uh, learning from each other. So we're very excited to be part of this. Thank you very much. I don't have any pictures of you. Now I do. <laughs> anyway, we do need to do... We should do another piece. Now Jane Dudman is back from The Guardian. I wonder about taking another kick at the can on financialization. I think we need to. The one thing, the one takeaway that they should know is that cities around the world are shifting right. and publicly doing so and blah, blah, blah. Serbia, you could show up for lunch with 16 people and they're like, here, here, let's have the 14-year-old the Rakia, you know, that grandpa made. I have two things here for you that I'm hoping will help you move forward to ensuring the right to housing is in the national housing strategy. The first one is like totally practical. Draft legislation. Oh, it's amazing. Volgende week dus zo'n verhaal als dit verhaal, maar dan uit Rotterdam, uit Tweebusbosbuurt, waar de mensen, net als de vleermuizen, worden eigenlijk de deuren en de ramen dichtgetimmerd, zodat ze niet terug kunnen. En dan, dat is zeg maar de officiële voorwaarde om mensen eruit te krijgen. Vogeltjes, bomen, vleermuizen, vlinders, alles. Dus tot volgende week.